Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 75th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19 in Brazil with Rosanna Dent and Gilberto Hockman. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or anywhere that you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls using Twitter. Just go to um, the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself. As of today, June 26, 2020, there are 9,695,375 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 9,506,000. 788 cases yesterday. Of those, 2,453,044 are in the United States, up from 2,407,167 cases. There are now a total of 124,891 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 122,370 deaths reported yesterday, and those numbers have gone up in a really surprising and very unfortunate way in Brazil there have been 54,971 deaths from COVID-19. I'd like to introduce my guests for our conversation today. It's one I've really looking, been looking forward to, and let me introduce them. Rosanna Dent is an assistant professor in the Federated History Department of New Jersey Institute of Technology and Rutgers, Newark. She has published work on the history of epidemiological research in indigenous communities and the history of genetics and anthropology in Brazil. She is currently working on a manuscript that examines the political and social history of research interactions in Shavanta territory, as well as a digital humanities project to return scientific materials to the communities they document. My second guest, Gilberto Hockman, is a researcher and professor at the Casa de Oswaldo Cruz Field Cruz in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. He's the author of works on health policies in a historical perspective, such as the book The Sanitation of Brazil, Nation, State, and Public Health, 1889-1930, which was published in 2016 by Illinois University Press. His current research is about science, politics, and health in Cold War Brazil. Rosanna and Gilberto, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having us. Thank you for the invitation. I'd like to start the way I always have with these conversations, just to find out where people are and what the situation is like there. So, Rosanna, may I start with you, please? Where are you calling in from? What's the pandemic situation there? And if you wouldn't mind saying a bit more also about racial justice protests going on where you are, if there are any. Um, I'm calling in from Philadelphia, so I'm not so far from you, I think. Um, and, um, you know, as you know, things here are kind of starting to open up. Um, I really had this privilege of being able to work uh, from home. Um, so I haven't been out a lot um, except to uh, attend uh 
protests um, and and just a moment of reflection has been to see just how many people are wearing masks, um, how many people are taking care of each other um, in those contexts of, of protest. Um, but I thought I would also say um, that if I weren't for COVID-19, I wouldn't be available right now. I wouldn't be here. I would actually, uh, I would be in Chivante territory um, in Mato Grosso, which is central Brazil. It's a Cerrado ecosystem, like a savanna ecosystem, so not a tropical jungle. Um, uh, and I thought maybe I'd give a little bit of a picture of what COVID is looking like in indigenous territories right now. Um, so to complement your data on Brazil, um, uh, according to the epidemiological bulletin of CESAI, which is the subsystem of indigenous health, um, uh, which is part of the Ministry of Health in Brazil, as of yesterday um, at 5 p.m., there were 5,093 confirmed cases, um, 2,487 cured cases, 645 suspected cases, and 129 deaths. Um, in that have been identified as indigenous uh, people uh, from different um, ethnic groups in Brazil. Um, now, the, the uh, indigenous organization uh, Articulação dos Povos Indígenas do Brasil, uh, APIV, which uh, gives a much, much higher numbers. Um, I couldn't find the most recent, but last week their figures were sort of like 60% higher for um, cases and 180% higher for um, deaths. Um, and so they're reporting a fatality rate um, for COVID that's sort of like twice the national average in, in Brazil. Um, uh, and I'll just say very quickly that in the Chavante territory where I would be working if I could have traveled, um, there are infections spreading. Um, and the situation is really considered quite critical because uh, Chavante live in multi-generational houses, much like many other indigenous groups in Brazil. Um, they have communal water sources, uh, which makes really social isolation and hand washing um, safely really difficult. Um, and but so far, the village where I collaborate, there haven't been any cases um, and they're doing a lot of um, things to try and prevent them, uh, which I'm happy to talk about more. Just to stay with this for a second. So this is an area you've returned to frequently as a researcher. And undoubtedly, you now you have friends there and social connections there. You're able to keep in some contact during this time. Yeah, um, as I think we'll probably talk about, Brazil is very, very uh, uh, people in Brazil are very online, are very uh, social media savvy. And so I'm in communication on a regular basis with folks that I collaborate with there in the villages through WhatsApp. Um, and so I actually just got a whole set of photos um, from uh, the, the, some of the folks who work with me on the Digital Humanities Project. Um, they're down they're They've left the village. They're down by the river. They're social isolating. Um, so they're fishing and hunting a lot more, um, doing a lot more collecting of food, traditional foods um, to, to try and stay out of the cities, to stay out of the context of, of buying food, because in the surrounding um, urban areas that are sort of, a, you know, a, a number of hours away by truck, um, there are cases, there are active cases of COVID, um, and uh, they're very, very worried about bringing it back to the village. Um, so um, I can report back that there are many beautiful piranha being eaten today <laughs> on the banks of the Rio uh, das Morches. <laughs> and you've seen it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that 
for that orientation. And Gilberto, the same question to you. Where are you calling in from and what's the COVID-19 situation there right now? I'm calling from Rio de Janeiro and situation not only in Rio, but in Brazil is very difficult now. As you, I, I didn't got uh, the most uh, recent numbers this, this afternoon, but uh, around each day, the last days are more than a thousand deaths, and we are reaching 55,000 deaths. That's uh, terrible, and there is no uh, uh, light on the, in the end, because uh, we can discuss why we are leaving this situation in Brazil related to, to the, the government, how, how our government is dealing with the, with the situation. And now uh, it's very hard because uh, COVID-19 is reaching the, what we named the popular areas, uh, the favelas and the peripheral areas of Rio de Janeiro, and it is a tragedy, a tragedy. Then uh, the situation is uh, very bad. I'm working at home. Uh, I'm teaching uh, graduate students uh, online. But my institution, uh, Fiocruz, is, is on the front line of the <laughs> response. Then uh, we have a hospital. We lost uh, colleagues in, in this fighting against the, the, the disease. Uh, this is increasing. We have a new hospital, a hospital of 200 beds for COVID in, in Fiocruz, Rio de Janeiro. And also we, Fiocruz, perhaps today is the uh, most important institution or health institution dealing with the epidemics. Then, uh, especially uh, related to Amazon area that uh, Rosana also knows that Fiocruz uh, is sending uh, people to many indigenous areas that we can talk about this situation. Uh, then uh, the picture of Rosana uh, drop is absolutely real and dramatic. Uh, uh, Especially when people are rich, people that are in contact with the uh, indigenous population, especially now in very west of Amazon area in São Gabriel da Cachoeira, uh, it's very hard. Then uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, the perspective is very similar to the. U.S. Perhaps we are talking about mm -hmm. the same with different levels mm -hmm. of of, of uh, problems, but it has the same problem. Yeah? Just increasing uh, uh, the states and municipalities like Rio de Janeiro are opening uh, the economy when the the curve is rising. Then. Uh, the perspective is not good. The only thing I, I understand that I just talk with people from Fiocruz that related to the vaccine, uh, people are preparing uh, if the vaccine succeed, 
special to Oxford vaccine that's testing now in, in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. Uh, Brazil becomes the testing <laughs> uh, field for the vaccine because the mm -hmm. spreading of, of this, that's a problem, but we can uh, but uh, right. Phil Cruz is trying to 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 to, the, uh, to prepare to produce the vaccine if uh, uh, some success with this vaccine will reach we at least at the, at the end of, of of the year. I see. Well, thank you for that context, and also I'm sorry for the colleagues that you've. You've lost there at Field Cruise. Very sorry to hear that. Um, I'd like to get some background here for those who may not be as familiar, like myself, with Brazilian history. Rosanna, let me start with you because maybe you, it seems you have such great knowledge of ind indigenous populations in Brazil and your own ongoing research. And maybe you can sketch out for us a little bit of the background, how we should be thinking about the epidemiological or epidemic history of indigenous populations in Brazil. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I guess um, we were talking just briefly about um, how I'm in contact with with folks in in the village where I work and and the prominence of, of WhatsApp, um, the prominence of social media, um, and I guess I'd just start by saying it's not tremendously surprising that there's been um, one of the rumors, one of the sort of pieces of what I think is almost definitely false information that's been circulating in networks um, uh, among indigenous groups has been um, sort of uh, reports of uh, being experimented upon with hy uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, so as you maybe have heard, very much like Trump, uh, President Bolsonaro has been trumpeting uh, the use of this uh, of hydroxychloroquine uh, since early in the pandemic with no evidence. Um, it has since been, you know, I think disproven. Um, and Brazilian scientists were among those publishing some of the early studies that showed the health risks of, of using hydroxychloroquine to treat. But this comes back to this question of the, this kind of circulation of, of, of false news in, in these social media sites, um, where it, I think a lot of indigenous folks are very worried that they're being given treatments that are experimental. Um, and that that relates to a much longer and deeper uh, distrust in some of the scientific research and medical treatment that comes um, from longer legacies of scientific work in communities, um, in, in indigenous communities throughout, throughout Brazil. Um, and I would say that there are, um, there's a really lovely, and this would be maybe a great um, episode for you um, sometime, uh, a, a group of scholars who got together uh, to write about Zika um, and to think about uh, sort of different historias, different stories or histories. And in Portuguese, the word is the same as uh, Luisa Reis Castro points out in her, um, in her work. Um, there's these different competing stories about what the epidemics, what the epidemic of Zika was, but also you can think about that more broadly for epidemics in indigenous populations. Um, and so the work that I've done, and this is um, 
sort of co-authored work with uh, a colleague who's actually also at Fiocruz, um, Ricardo Ventura Santos, has looked at some of the epidemiological research uh, in the 1970s, um, or 1960s actually, sorry, that was trying to understand um, the biology of disease uh, and the epidemiology of disease in indigenous communities in the wake of the depopulation of the Americas. Um, so at a moment when um, Brazil was opening up, like col colonizing the interior of the country um, through formal processes, uh, through uh, government-sponsored uh, development projects, um, the uh, during that time, um, the the researchers um, arrived thinking that this was maybe an opportunity to understand something more fundamental about the biology, the epidemiology of indigenous peoples. This idea that maybe there was a, a, a less competent immune system in indigenous groups, which could explain uh, the how disease had swept through the Americas at the moment of colonization, um, you know, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, these much longer disasters that started with, with the process of colonialization. Um, now, what, um, for example, Francis Black, who was one of these epidemiologists who was at Yale, what he found as he did his research and he used the measles vaccine as a model to try and understand the immune response of uh, TDO and other um, in indigenous groups, um, what he found was actually that there wasn't a big immunological difference in <laughs> biology was pretty much the same. Uh, the indigenous groups that he was researching had just as uh, competent uh, immune system as any other human groups. Um, and so that's kind of one story, right? This biological account of the depopulation of the Americas being about disease and, and really being about um, something biological instead of the social conditions of colonialism. Um, I think if you were to look at historias, histories, stories that come from indigenous communities, and here I'm thinking um, specifically, you know, some listeners might be interested, for example, um, David Kopenawa, um, co-authored with Bruce Albert, an, uh, an amazing um, book called The Falling Sky, which has been translated into French, Portuguese, English. Um, and, and there he really talks about this moment of uh, contamination and infection that comes with with the presence of, of the white, white, whites in Yanomami territory. Um, and actually, um, another person who's been writing about this in terms of COVID and thinking about this in terms of now um, is um, uh, an anthrop a graduate student in anthropology uh, Francinea Fonchizbaniwa, um, and I would really recommend that people take a look at her piece. Um, she It was translated into English, so um, you can find it on the University of Manchester's Cultures of Anti-Racism in Latin America blog, um, and it's entitled Memories of the Past, Fear of the Present, Being Indigenous in the Face of the Pandemic. And what she does is she looks at this moment, this profound fear that she's experiencing in this moment as she thinks about, you know, the upper Rio Negro is where her family lives, her, uh, she's Vaniwa, um, and, and she's, you know, she writes about the same quote, I've already heard so many accounts from my grandmothers, uncles, aunts, and parents about measles, chickenpox, and whooping cough back in the time of the rubber plantations. Um, at night, we ate dinner, and then they'd start to recount things that had happened in the past. And so there's this lived memory that for Vaniwa, is, is not even that distant. These 
epidemics were in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. Um, and these are lived histories that people are still experiencing. And so that context, I think, is really to make, make important to make sense of what's happening for indigenous communities um, throughout Brazil now. Many of them have living um, relatives who were alive during these um, recent um, epidemics. Um, and so um, COVID both is more terrifying and also uh, is in this context of real resilience uh, of people who are surviving and have have been surviving uh, for 520 years. That continuity and the way you draw it out, I mean, you've done it so so skillfully and economically um, and the way that you, you say this, it's passed along um, through stories or folklore and other, and other means. Are there um, tangible markers of that history in some way, either erected there in those communities or the government itself somehow marking I mean, aside from what may happen in educational institutions, is there some way to read that history, either in the land or in the memorial or some other way to do it? Or it literally is being passed along in, this, in, in a much more sort of oral or literary tradition, the way you're describing uh, I think, I mean, I, I think that you can read it in the land if you think about the depopulation um, and the history of depopulation. I mean, if you think about the... In, uh, there's a, uh, you know, Brazil does have relative to other uh, countries in the Americas, a relative, a, a large percentage of its land um, demarcated for as indigenous land. But 13% is very little if it used to be 100%, right? And so you could think about um, the physical scars on the land of agribusiness, of um, plantation slavery, of sugar production. You can think of these as real markers of indigenous genocide in a certain sense, because um, none of those things could have happened without the depopulation. And as we know, um, the, the spread of disease um, was, is, is really related to social and historical uh, facts not to biological facts. And so I think there's one way to think about the land itself as, as being marked by that. Um, but, I, but there's also an incredibly rich oral tradition and each different community, village, people is going to have their own oral tradition. Um, I'm not sure really uh, who among them, and, and there's definitely written um, stories, histories that reflect this. Um, uh, I'm not sure how many of them are available in English, but but you know different um, different groups do have uh, things that they've been working on. Gilberto, let me turn to you and sort of hear from you a little bit about your work, giving some context for us to understand the interplay between science, medicine, and politics in Brazil in Brazil's history. Um. Uh, related to, to the epidemics, uh, my, uh, my book is about the old, old Brazilian Republic, the, the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Uh, my question was related to why uh, and what, 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 what the path to the, the construction to build a national uh, policy, health policy. How uh, the state until least answer to the problems like uh, diseases, epidemics, especially endemic diseases. And my my case was uh, especially how to build cooperation between the uh, states and municipalities 
when you have a federative uh, constitution like the old republic then uh, the best example is about uh, Spanish flu, 1918. They get Brazil uh, in the end, between September and, and December of 1918. And uh, the impact of the uh, Spanish influenza, uh, Spanish flu, was... Uh, perhaps the first effort to, to build a national department of public health. Uh, this, uh, sociologically, it's, uh, it's a, a, a social experience about social interdependence and, and sanitary interdependence between uh, uh, in the Brazilian society. That's so dramatic that uh, some solutions about uh, uh, a, cooper a cooperative way between uh, states and municipalities and national state was built in this kind of, uh, uh, it's one year uh, after the, the epidemic of the pandemic of Spanish flu, we built uh, a national uh, Department of, of Public Health, very small in the sense of the, uh, the uh, system of health unified system today, but uh, per perhaps the impact of pandemics uh, of influenza was uh, the sensation of uh, no safety, uh, interdependence between. Uh, okay, it's not. The poor people, Brazil is very, was very unequal, is still very unequal, that's a problem. But the, the, the idea of inter, interdependence, that uh, you can catch the disease from the poor, was uh, a least solution to a, a more national policy, more coordinating policy. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, today is not, it's not uh, the question we have. Uh, uh, since the constitution of 1988, uh, we have a unified health system, universal coverage, and it's very important uh, with a lot of problems, but it's a value that the, the idea of the uh, health has a right, as a social right, is on the, on the constitution, and a duty of the national state also in the constitution, and uh, despite the problems that you have, perhaps today this health system with a lot of problems is the best that we have to uh, mm. respond to the uh, pandemics despite the government and despite the social elites that understand that it's possible uh, to go on with the economy and uh, left uh, people, uh, special uh, poor people, indigenous people, and uh, Afro-descendants in general, left to the a kind of chance, if God or not God, to survive or not. Uh, that, that's, that's a situation. It's, it's a complicated situation that how Brazilian society 
uh, understand today uh, social relationships uh, that this pandemic uh, show us so many uh, inequalities and how to go on with the idea that, uh, like U.S., you can you have to uh, the economy is it's most important or the same like right. <laughs> the health of the population. Then, if you right. make a a conversation be, between 1918 and 2020, uh, uh, I think perhaps uh, uh, it's clear that uh, Brazilian upper class and elites uh, don't worry about uh, the poor and the more fr fragile uh, classes in our society. Then uh, it's, it, it's important to say that it's incredible how social movements like indigenous movement, but in Rio, in Sao Paulo, are organizing themselves to take care mm. of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, 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 uh, despite all the problems, you have uh, like people are renting ambulances in, in poor area to, to transfer people to the beds that are available in the public hospitals, uh, people checking uh, fever and uh, testing and trying to articulate uh, some social movement and uh, health movement also of professionals in perif more peripheral areas of Rio, Sao Paulo and others. That it, it's interesting, perhaps uh, at, an, at the end of this, uh, you have, uh, I, I'm very optimistic because if not, we will not, we will not survive psychically, right. <laughs> survival. But uh, the idea that you have a, a, social, a strong social movement emerging to respond mm -hmm. to the COVID, and also the idea is incredible, incredible, like the, uh, from very conservative but not fascist uh, politician that saying how is important our unified health system. Because if right. not, if you have uh, now 55, uh, the idea with, with no uh, universal system, uh, I don't know that would be the numbers. Be much worse. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and my conversation today about Brazil and COVID-19 with Gilberto Hockman and Rosanna Dent. Rosanna, I mean, one of the things, of course, we've been talking about in the United States is that it's it's really quite impossible to talk about the national experience of COVID-19. I'm not sure that was ever really very valuable conversation, although in the early days we did talk about it and we talked a lot about the federal government response. But now it's every state, every territory and every um, city within states and every tribal government is also dealing with their own um, realities of this epidemic, this pandemic. I wonder if you could 
give us your perspective on how that works in Brazil, particularly in light of what Gilberto is talking about, the achievement of a national health system, which I didn't realize was tied to the 1918 pandemic, although that's not su surprising, but it's illuminating to, to understand that. But maybe you could say a little bit more about health inequalities in Brazil and particularly what the indigenous experience of healthcare is in Brazil. Sure. Um, and I would say, I mean, if people want to take a look at some of the really inspiring things that Gilberto was talking about, um, you can you can follow the hashtag COVID nas favelas. Um, and what you'll see there is these incredible mutual aid programs that are being put together. Um, and there's a longer history of uh, health activism, um, both in indigenous communities and in the black movement. Um, and I would also just draw people's attention to uh, Melissa Creary's work. Um, she, she talks about um, uh, biocultural citizenship and, and kind of the justice movement around the black movement's um, uh, uh, work to establish a national health policy for the Black population in Brazil, um, and how you know it—it's it, very—it's an inspiring tale, but it's also a, a fraught tale because when you start to get you know special differentiated systems that are focused on particular kinds of health challenges, it's very hard to do that without reifying biological notions of race. And Brazil has very different race relations than we think of in the United States. Categorization works differently. Um, people identify differently. Um, uh, there's not as active, although there's a very active conversation about race, but generally, um, especially in kind of uh, middle class society, there tends to be a lot more discussion about class. Um, maybe that's more comfortable than to talk about things in terms of race. Um, so in terms of, uh, and so I would just really recommend Melissa Creary's work, um, and she has work coming out also on the kind of uh, bounded justice that comes with these sort of small fixes for really systemic problems. Um, and I would say that that's a similar system. I mean, so uh, the constitution that gives um, health as a right, the 1988 constitution, um, there's an article in the constitution, um, I think I had it written down here, it's article uh, 196, um, that guarantees indigenous people specifically uh, a differentiated health service, uh, one that takes into account cultural uh, uh, factors, um, demographic factors, and also geographical factors, because these are huge issues in terms of indigenous uh, people having access to health care. Um, and, and there's a lot of challenges that go into creating a national system uh, for Indigenous health. I mean, you have to think about there's more than 305 different peoples who live in Brazil. Um, there is more than 274 languages that are spoken. And in many communities, uh, the, the, they're monolingual communities, so, or there, there will be bi some bilingual folks and some people speak Portuguese, but, but a lot of communities are functioning um, in, in the community where I work. Most people, uh, more than half the community only speaks Shavante. So that um, it can also be really take a long time to get to centralized health services. So hospitals are far away. It might be a couple of days to get to a hospital. Um, and then infrastructure within those these villages it can be really lacking. And it will also be dependent on the status of the indigenous territory, whether it's been um, recognized and is, is sort of federally recognized and, and or whether it's in the process of recognition or whether it's an unrecognized territory. And that's going to de determine um, sanitation. Um, also, whether there's a health 
uh, post or uh, whether there are health, health personnel who are serving that indigenous territory. Those are related to these kind of bureaucratic processes, um, which Bolsonaro ran on a platform of abolishing indigenous land. So, you know, these are things that have been put on hold. Um, hope I'm not going. <laughs> so, um, I, but I guess um, to get. <laughs> to I'm learning get, a lot. Please keep going. To get back to your question about um, so what is a health what is the health like um, in indigenous communities well it's administered by CESI, which is the special secretary of indigenous health um, it's it's divided up into a system of districts um, and then a, the districts um, in are are resourced independently from SUS, from the universal healthcare system, but they, they interface with it. Um, but in general, uh, the resources that are available are incredibly limited. Um, and the Minister of Health, uh, although he's now, you know, he's one of the prior Ministers of Health, because the Bolsonaro uh, regime has been going through Ministers of Health at quite a uh, clip lately, um, he, he was promising to get rid of CESI, of this specialized Indigenous health system, um, since 2019. So before the pandemic, um, there were already attacks on this system. Um, and once uh, the pandemic was underway in April, um, the, the, I think the next Minister of Health, or maybe the one after that, announced that CESI would no longer attend um, Indigenous people in urban centers. Um, and so this um, is part of a much longer issue in uh, making visible inequity, inequity in health, which is that uh, urban Indigenous populations, um, Indigenous people who don't live in um, demarcated Indigenous land, are often um, lumped into the category of Pardo or Brown. They're not given special services, even though they still have the same cultural and linguistic needs um, that they're guaranteed by the Constitution. Um, and so um, that's another aspect of how the Bolsonaro government has been really weakening the indigenous health system um, very systematically. Um, and, and that's having pretty large um, impacts in terms of uh, responding to the pandemic now. So we've brought it forward now into the contemporary politics of, of Bolsonaro and, and Trump's name has been invoked. Uh, I want to use that as a, a segue to get the, there's a couple of questions that have already come in and I want to bring one to you, Gilberto, this is from Tiago Saraiva. He's asking oh. um, if you could speak to the pressures that field crew scientists are suffering from the Bolsonaro government. <laughs> is field crew's activity being undermined by the current government? So this gets to this broader issue, which I think we talk about in the United States a lot too, about the not only the administration um, downplaying scientific achievement, defunding science, but also literally going after data, disappearing data, um, and and then even going further, which is to bring specific scientists' names into um, discussion as opponents of the administration. So I think that's, for me, that's important to think about where that may be happening in other parts of the world. So Tiago's question to you, Gilberto, is how is Bolsonaro's attack on science affecting your colleagues there in field crews? Uh, thanks, Thiago, uh, for the question. And the, uh, the problems not be, uh, began with Bolsonaro. Uh, problems began uh, since the impeachment of uh, President Dilma uh, Rousseff. It's very traumatic, and came a, a more conservative uh, coalition, and now uh, far right uh, government. Uh, with uh, a lot of problems, but 
Bolsonaro now uh, expressed a, uh, a very conservative and evangelical uh, thinking in Brazilian society. Yeah. Uh, uh, Anti-abortion, anti-human women rights, anti-indigenous people, anti-environment, and a lot of uh, uh, attacks on, on many fr uh, fronts. Uh, Indian science is, is the same. You have a, a huge uh, problem of uh, science funding, but once again, since the Temer government, it's not now, it's, it's a process that now is more far right, yeah, and uh, Fiocruz has a has a foundation of the Ministry of Health. We are linked directly to, to, to the Ministry of Health. Have uh, fighting how to deal with this all this research, opinion, and uh, criticism that. We made about uh, the health systems and science, and we are trying uh, to deal with the situation that's very delicate, especially now. Rosana uh, mentioned the chloroquine uh, questions, and our res researchers from uh, Fiocruz uh, Amazonia from Manaus. Uh, was one of the first papers, uh, articles published on chloroquine and the non-effect, the dangers, uh, become prosecuted mm -hmm. by uh, some uh, justice uh, in, in, in some parts of, of Brazil. Now they have to uh, hire uh, lawyers to, <laughs> to defend because uh, there's the details on uh, experimentation, then they are accused to not to like a, perhaps a, a Tuskegee experimentation. You have the, the, the drug, but you make a experimental group. It's very complicated situation, but not by the government, but, but by the society. That, that, that's that's the horrible situation now in Brazil. That uh, uh, Bolsonaro is the voice of 25, 30 percent of a society that disbelieve in, in science and opinion. That's connect uh, uh, traditional anti-vaccinism with evangelicals in many ways. The, and Bolsonaro is very linked to the, this kind of ba uh, political basis uh, to trying to uh, promote things, uh, non-science. Uh, it's very strange for uh, social sciences uh, like me to defend science today. Yeah. After all, all, two decades of social studies of science and things I like know. that. <laughs> <laughs> now I, in Brazil, that's You're great. Describing Yes, I know. And, but but in, in case of Fiocruz, we're trying to deal with the situation that uh, for, the, for the government, uh, the main institution is Fiocruz to, to deliver vaccines, uh, 
uh, health research, the labs or, or virus labs, and things like that. Then, uh, at this point, Thiago, is a question, you have a lot of pressures. Uh, it's very, the situation is delicate, but I, I, we, we did not experiment uh, like censorship or things like that. But, uh, but the question is, uh, Brazilian 1988 constitution was uh, health and democracy are very linked. It's very different I from see. 1918. Right. It was a really oligarchical society. 88, 1988, it's health and democracy. For the first time in Brazil, this link between and democracy and health, it's important. Now, the question of democracy, uh, the erosion of democracy, it's uh, have had impact on, on health issues. Then uh, yeah. it's very uh, delicate situation how to deal with uh, uh, constitutional rights to health and the erosion of democracy. And then it's in and and I think we will see perhaps, uh, depend, uh, uh, depending on the municipal elections of the uh, November and U.S. elections are very important to Brazil. Sure. <laughs> perhaps it's, it's you so have funny a, that you... <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you have a, 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 perhaps a... a the, when new alliances uh, will be possible in this new new situation. So it's interesting that you're you're not the first person that I've talked to in these in these discussions who said you know the career is dedicated to history of science or STS and so our job is to be um, respectful but critical of the claims yeah. of science and scientific institutions and now we find ourselves find any epidemiologist we can find we throw our arms around them and we you know because this is it is really a pitched battle in certain in certain ways and um, it's interesting one other thing I would note just some recent polling in the United States um, about Trump is at just to the point you were making Gilberto about um, conservative uh, religious affinity um, for Trump which one wouldn't necessarily think would be true to begin with, but laying that aside, it does seem to be softening a little bit. So that um, there is something here, even for people who may oppose what we would sort of generally say science, they don't, they're also not in favor of members of their family dying of a preventable disease. And so we have these sort of values which are coming into very strong conflict here, even in the evangelical communities in the United States. This seems to be one of the more recent data points coming out of the out of the polling. Um, there's a question here, Rosanna, for you from Melissa, who's also listening, Melissa Creary, who I think you name checked earlier. And the question is about um, are there any Zika related responses specific to vulnerable populations, indigenous and otherwise, that were shown to be effective and could be adapted for COVID-19? 
That's a great question. I, I mean, Brazil has an incredible history of successful responses to epidemics. I mean, in teaching the history of global public health, um, you know, Brazil is one of, and of course, I love to give Brazil as an example. This is my area of expertise. But in in any course, you're going to find people who are really addressing HIV AIDS, for example, by looking at uh, the Brazilian response uh, to give antiretrovirals broadly to anyone with a diagnosis, which ended up stemming a pandemic, uh, an epidemic of, of HIV that could have been much, much worse um, by following these right to health. Um, discourses, right? Um, and and I think that Zika um, Zika presents some interesting um, some interesting parallels with with COVID nineteen. And and here um, I'm really drawing on this lovely uh, set of essays in Somatosphere, which I would encourage everyone to go and check out. Um, and some of the things there that I think are um, really helpful for thinking about COVID uh, are the following: that there are certain narratives about who is vulnerable. Um, and I, I, I can't give all the authors' names because it's a whole set that go together, and I can't remember who who said what. But please check it out in Somatosphere. And and there's a there's a a discourse uh, of vulnerability around Zika for example, that focused on women um, and women getting pregnant um, and women who had the potential to get pregnant or who were pregnant protecting themselves from mosquitoes with almost no attention um, to the question of sexual transmission of Zika, which is also sexually transmitted. So women could be very carefully protecting themselves while their partners were, were not um, because the public health messaging had focused in so uh, you know acutely on who was at risk. And I think you see a similar thing maybe earlier in the pandemic for COVID, but this focus on the elderly, uh, or or not even the elderly, but those who are over 65 being at higher risk, um, you know, those kinds of discourses uh, circulating so uh, easily and, and quickly uh, at the beginning kind of um, set up a certain dynamic where younger people were just not as afraid. And you see this um, replicated by Bolsonaro, who literally talks about how, you know, in uh, he's so healthy, he'll be fine, and that normal people will be fine. It's just old people who need to be careful. So those kinds of ideas about who's at risk and how those stories get told are important. Now, in terms of um, strategies that could be successful, I mean, I think, um, gosh, I'm not, I can't think of an exact uh, one from Zika, but I would say in general, there's such a history of really effective public health responses in Brazil, but they were very much predicated on a strong sistema unico de saúde, a strong unified health system, um, uh, and also uh, incredible support for research, which has really been uh, spectacular in Brazil for, for many years. Um, and these things have been so undermined um, uh, by the current administration and, and by I, as Gilberto so aptly pointed out, uh, Temer and the, all, all of what's happened politically since um, since Dilma uh, Rousseff was um, was impeached. Um, so I do think there are great models that could be used for for COVID around the world, um, and unfortunately, Brazil's in not a strong place to implement them um, at the moment. Thank you for that. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking to Rosanna Dent and Gilberto Huckman. I want to come to another area here that um, we've been talking a lot about on COVID calls and we have to talk about in the context of Brazil and that's climate change and uh, environmental politics more generally. So a uh, question um, maybe first to you, Rosanna, and then to you, Gilberto, how are the politics of climate change and the politics of COVID-19 interacting in Brazil? 
how in what ways might it be useful to think about both of those those problems in the same frame when we talk about Brazilian politics? Well, um, oh, go ahead, Gilberto. I I I I think uh, it's the same frame: the negation of climate change and the negationism of the COVID nineteen. It's the same frame, mm-hmm. and I don't know. What do you mean by when you say negation, Gilberto? What do you uh, say neg- a little more uh, about that? It's about uh, like Trump, uh, Bolsonaro said it's a little flu. Uh, it's, 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 that's the idea. This, like you said to to the question to to Hosanna and Hosanna mentioned, uh, it's like uh, okay, some vulnerable people will die, but uh, okay, and go on. And the idea that that's not a big deal. Uh, till now, till yesterday, <laughs> he said that with 55 dead, 55,000 dead, it's horrible. And uh, then the idea that climate change with this government, uh, it's a hoax, old, like the old the negations of climate change, old, all about the, the, the all around the world. It's the same frame, the same frame. Uh, that that that's uh, uh, science is not important. Uh, health science or environment science, it's not important. What's important is uh, development or some kind of development. Development of, in the case now, of this government in Amazon area is a. Uh, Open the doors for mining, uh, destruction. Uh, our environment minister or our anti anti environment minister—it's a contradiction—said <laughs> in the famous uh, meeting, ministerial meeting that they take in in Brazil and the justice release the idea: let's uh, use the COVID nineteen to deregulate all the environment laws, etc. Then there is a, 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 a alliance between uh, neg- the negation of COVID-19 and uh, uh, the negation of environment or the interest of agro, uh, in, agro industry, the big, uh, industry or wood, things like that. And remember that, Scott, uh, I know that you, you study disaster. This is, think about uh, the mining disaster of the last five years, uh, Mariana, mm-hmm. Sobradinho, that uh, uh, with a lot of health problems, uh, people are studying not only the disaster, the deaths, yeah, of the mining disaster in Minas Gerais, in, in uh, south southeast of Brazil, but the all this environment uh, crash that you have with the uh, uh, with mosquitoes uh, and new diseases, or not new, but the re-enter of diseases with this all this uh, mass with the disasters, the mining disaster. 
then Brazil is suffering uh, from five, four, five years. Uh, uh, the, the regulation of environment laws and also uh, like 300 people died in, in disaster of Brumadinho, the mining disaster. Mm -hmm. And till now, you do not have solution. I, I in, in last January, I make a trip in Minas Gerais, and you have doing the, the road uh, advises, okay, this is an area of disaster because a lot of the same time mm -hmm. of, of mining barriers <laughs> in many times, many places in Minas Gerais. Right. That's crazy. Right. Oh, and then I would like to, to put all this together. It's not, uh, okay, you have a crazy uh, government that uh, say that, okay, uh, COVID is not a big big deal. People will die anyway in some part of, of the history of their lives. But also it's related to the attack to the indigenous people. That's very important to the mining, the mining areas and the regulations of the environment. Then uh, I understand that it's all connected now. Unfortunately, uh, it's connected in the, the worst way and uh, very difficult to make some barriers to, to this. Perhaps our salvation will be uh, uh, the, the international trade that that's begin uh, it's beginning to say okay uh, we will not buy more goods mm. if the country uh, deregulates the, the, the environment things like that but mm. still uh, you have you still have okay in the mining area you know it's a Canadian <laughs> companies in Brazil sure. things like that but it's a big problem it's not only related to the sure. Brazilian sure. government but a very international uh, interest, the big capital that uh, running uh, this kind of uh, advance on, 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 on indigenous areas and also in, in, in mining areas. So many important things in what you just said. And one of them that I think we have to really be clear about is that it's too simple uh, to talk about a bad COVID response and, and talk about Bolsonaro or Trump. I mean, I think that can be, that's an important part of a discussion, but if that's where the discussion ends, I think we will have very badly misunderstood the the many other things that we could be learning at this time. And I just want to put a pin in one other thing that you said there, and Rosanna, I also want to get your reaction to this, is that um, the sort of nature of these problems as interconnected and ongoing and that we've seen a pretty strong evolution of the approach against that from corporate interests which at some point switched from look we know there's costs associated with mining but there's more benefits than costs and then the conversation moved to um we're not so sure that there's good science about the costs and now just an attack on the the existence itself of the threat. I mean, that to me is a pretty remarkable 
trajectory here. I guess getting to, again, this term is quite important term, negationism. I don't know, Rosanna, anything Gilberto said there or any of these issues sort of resonating for you in the way you think about these problems? Yeah, I think uh, definitely. I mean, there's there's also the very sort of obvious basic fact that this expansionism and this um, the the government, the federal government giving a complete green light to people to invade um, indigenous territories for mining, for extractive practices, um, it continues in the context of the pandemic. And so this is actually a way that the disease is being introduced to uh, communities that are far from medical attention or might have very limited resources um, for that kind of thing. So in a very literal way, they're intersecting in terms of uh, patterns of infection. Um, but I would say more broadly, um, you know, Brazil was last so prominently in the news not that long ago for fires, for, for, for the Amazon being on fire, right? Um, which is a product of this kind, these policies that um, uh, really have taken a, a major turn because Brazil was a world leader um, not that long ago in terms of really um, taking state-led action around climate change and, and, and particularly around deforestation. So um, very, very quickly, um, uh, uh, this, um, the, the neoliberal or the, the kind of economic interests have been uh, promoted to such an extent um, over the well-being of people. Um, and, and this is really the pattern, I think, that brings together these two things, the environmental disaster that's going on and the health disaster that's going on, is that uh, economic interests uh, to, the, to this administration, but more generally, um, you know, for the past the past administration as well, these um, economic interests are just more important um, than uh, any issues of equity, um, health access, those kinds of things. Um, and so you see um, an incredible sacrifice. Um, now, sacrifice is not the right word, but an incredible violence that's being perpetrated. Um, and I would say, you know, it's a useful thing to think with some of the scholars, and I'm thinking about Indigenous scholars, um, both in North America, like Zoe Todd and Heather Davis have written this uh, about this together and thinking about the timing of the Anthropocene. Um, but also, um, this is something um, that uh, folks in Afrofuturism and Indigenous futurisms have, have talked about. You know, for some people, the post-apocalyptic period is already here, right? Um, and there's a sense that there may also be really important knowledges that are held by communities who have been um, at the brunt of uh, uh, an ongoing apocalypse. Um, that's about, uh, you know, plantation slavery, that's about uh, the depopulation of Africa, that's about um, uh, settler colonialism in the Americas. Um, and so there are knowledges there. And, and I would highlight um, work, uh, although it's not translated into English yet, uh, by uh, Alton Krenak, who has a wonderful essay called um, Ideas para Adiar o Fin del Mundo, which means like ideas to... Um, to delay the end of the world. Um, and one of the things that he argues, um, and it resonates really nicely with uh, recent work by Ryan Jobson um, in American Anthropologist, uh, that there has to be an abandonment of this particular liberal, individual, liberal, universal subject. Um, and that there has to be a sort of, we need a radical humanism um, to really understand and uh, value the knowledge 
practices that um, people who are living in a post-apocalyptic world already have, um, because those are the things that can help us. And and Krenak, you know, raises this question in conversation when someone says, like, what are you, what are the indigenous people going to do? He says, what I want to know, we're, we've been surviving for hundreds of years. What I want to know is what are the whites going to do? And, and so I think that there's that, um, that is a place where these different kinds of slow disasters that have been going on for so many years um, really come together. That's very powerfully put. And it, it also shows the impoverishment of our ideas when we think about this pandemic, that the timeline that most people are working with, and people are worried about their health today, and I don't want to demean that concern and their health tomorrow. Um, but this has to be a much deeper conversation going into, as you're saying here, we're using the term Anthropocene, a period of time in which the earth is shaped by human action. Um, and you're also bringing into the same frame settler colonialism and in indigenous genocide. There's a, there is an interconnection there that you have to be willing to move into. Otherwise, you just, you know, you're telling a very, very, very small part of the story and continually surprised by what's coming next when that surprise is also a tool of politics, I think. We're almost up on time here. Um, I want to get maybe just a quick note from each of you, um, not necessarily saying give me some good news, but um, maybe what is one thing in what's happening in Brazil right now that's giving you some hope or confidence? And I think, Rosanna, what you were just talking about maybe moves us a little bit in that in that direction. So, Rosanna, let me ask you first, something that you can leave us with that um, gives us some hope for Brazil. Well, um, I think, I mean, uh, Brazilian the many Brazilian people that I love are so resilient in so many different ways and have lived through a lot of disasters in the past. Um, and I would say something that's making me particularly hopeful about this current moment is, um, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, there were real social movements that were that grew out out of um, the military dictatorship of that period. Um, uh, I would say there's a strain of anthropology that emerged at that time, which is Anthropologia Militante, militant anthropology, which took, um, you know, uh, people really took activism and action as an essential part of the work of the scholar. Um, and I think that, you know, there's some great models there. And what I would say that's happening now that is even more hopeful is that, um, a lot of indigenous students are in the university and they're leading some of these conversations and they're leading some of, of, of this kind of action. Um, and so to see um, uh, people like Josie, uh, um, uh, 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 Duzia Kangang, um, you know, running uh, seminars online as part of the uh, the free uh, land uh, camp, which is a, a yearly protest. And here, this goes back to your very first question, which is like, what kinds of, of, of racial justice protests have been happening? So recently, um, there was a free land camp protest. This is something that's been happening every year for 16 years in Brazil. Um, it's usually an intertribal protest held in Brazilia. It's a huge camp. Uh, it, it, it's uh, they work together to set um, 
uh, guidelines or not guidelines, but um, agendas, political agendas for the indigenous movement. Um, it's a very powerful uh, thing. And this year they held it online because of COVID. And so you see, um, you know, folks like Josie um, uh, facilitating conversations um, with uh, an indigenous uh, diputada, an indigenous congresswoman who was the first indigenous congresswoman to be elected um, with international participation, with folks from across Brazil talking about, you know, how to have a really robust um, response in this climate of, of, of ongoing political crisis, right? Um, and to see that kind of leadership emerging, I think, is incredibly hopeful. Um, so I would leave you with that. That's wonderful. Thank you. Gilberto, the final word to you, giving us a, a note of confidence or hope to take away from Brazil today. Um. I will return to uh, 1988 in the sense of the, uh, our citizenship constitution, the idea you know, of, of rights that we have in our constitution has a, a north uh, to, to the defense of basically of democracy in Brazil. Uh, that's the main question for me is, okay, I, I totally agree with you that uh, COVID is a global tragedy, but is in a more uh, amplified problem that we are living uh, and about uh, environment destruction. People are talking not more about Anthropocene, but Necrocene that we are uh, living in the new new phase that to let die is 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 it's a way of running society. It's crazy. It's like colonial or, or new colonial ideas. But I, I I'm optimist in the sense that uh, uh, especially the Brazilian health system uh, to be resilient it's very important. You have a huge uh, national immunization program that uh, cover more than 10 vaccines for free. It's, there's no other uh, system that like this, perhaps uh, NHS in UK. But uh, Sophie, that's incredible uh, in the sense of uh, the, the public basket that offer immunization uh, for free for the society, then uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a like a biomedical, bio-citizenship. But this link, as you know, uh, the population to, to the state, uh, uh, not government, but the, but the Brazilian state, then this relation that are built, uh, Hosanna Rimer, uh, Remind us about HIV/AIDS program. They are still running, and Fiocruz is one of the production of the antiretrovirus for the system, and a lot of uh, public programs that link yeah, uh, this health system and the population. To, to and now in COVID-19 is is the same. Where where to run? Uh, the middle class in Rio runs with the private hospital that at the beginning of the pandemic were full of people. Mm. And now 
the, the, the wave of the middle class, the first wave of, for the middle class uh, decline, and uh, it's beginning more a wave in the popular areas, then it's the public system that are uh, engaging, open the doors for this. Then, uh, despite all the problems, despite the obstacles that you have, you have the third Minister of Health in during the, a pandemic. Now it's a, a, a general of the army that was the general in the Amazon area. Uh, the, uh, it's very specific. Uh, then, despite all this, we, I, I think, uh, I. I'm optimist in the sense that the links between uh, the population and the, and the health system will be stronger at, at the end. There's a re-evaluation of the idea of the public that you lost in the last five years a more liberal, new liberal economic environment and education policies then uh, we will survive, and I hope we will win <laughs> in the sense of civilization, democracy, and the most important thing for me, empathy. Yeah. Empathy. That's the, this, the, this connection that uh, this, yeah. this government don't have any connection <laughs> with the population. Yeah. And That's beautifully said. Rosanna, did you want to make a well. <laughs> to say it's that it's such a stirring I, I yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. About it's the motion. No, it's wonderful. Thank you. So beautifully captured yeah. also at the beginning. And I wanted to just remind people of this, this hope of the mutual aid, and that's this empathy that he's talking about, that people are are putting in place in favelas, in um, you know, under-resourced, majorly under-resourced areas. Um, there's so much care work going on. Um, and that also extends politically, and I don't think we've talked about it. I just wanted to make sure that it's out there, that there have been Black Lives Matter um, protests also in Brazil, and it's about police brutality. It's about the killing of black and brown, but especially black uh, Brazilians, especially by the police in in Sao Paulo, in Rio, in the big cities, all yeah, over the country. Well remember. And that this, um, that's really um, those movements are about solidarity um, here and they're about solidarity there and there there's a there's a transnational story uh, about this a shared a shared experience that I think really speaks to you know the kinds of um, the kinds of hopeful things that empathy uh, this moment that empathy and care is so needed so Tiago um, followed up with a quick note here to both of you that thank you for this illuminating connections particularly between environment and epidemics and just to what you were just saying Rosanna Melissa Creary followed up and said I hope there's a part two to this important conversation and I think that's uh, so you will you have now been summoned back by our listeners uh, to continue this because this point you're making about Black Lives Matter is not being only United States concern, but a global a global concern. And, and of course, we've been talking, even the framing of this conversation today, talking about COVID-19 in Brazil um, and reading those statistics that I read at the beginning. I think it's, of course, important to talk about it in the Brazilian context. But at every turn, we've also been talking about it as a hemispheric context or in, in the context of fascism or in the context of science. These broader frames are 
absolutely crucial to understanding. And also, I think, to finding solidarity and mutual aid. That mutual aid can be from the United States to Brazil as well. It doesn't have to be sort of locked up within individual nations or or cities. So um, I've learned a ton today. Thank you both so much. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID Calls, which you can catch every weekday, Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. I want to also let you know that on Monday we'll be talking to Paul Offit, uh, Dr. Paul Offit at Children's Hospital um, of Philadelphia. We'll be talking about, uh, you may know, know Paul's work, we'll be talking about vaccines and the search for a COVID-19 vaccine in the United States. And um, Gilberto and Rosanna, thanks a million for this time today. Thank you so much for having us. It was really good. Thank pleasure. you so much. It's a pleasure to okay. meet all of you. Stay healthy, everyone. Talk to you soon.